Welcome to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here. Very excited to be joined by Dr. Timothy Clark, who's the founder and CEO of Leader Factor, an organization that's doing really interesting work around leadership development. I, I attended a session on psychological safety. We're going to be diving into a lot of these topics with Tim very shortly. But before we get there, I want to begin by welcoming Tim to the show. Yeah, thanks very much, Mike. Good to be with you. Thanks for the invitation. You're a practiced professional communicator, so I'm excited about what we might get out of this conversation. You also are very much a teacher. You do have some ideas to get out there. We always love to begin the conversation by getting some perspective on who you are and how you got to this point in your professional life. Can you share with us that story? Sure. I've had a lot of diverse experiences. I, I grew up in Southern Colorado among the Navajo, Native mm. American tribe. My father was a teacher among the Navajo. Mm. And then we lived in LA. We lived in the Bay Area. I played Division One college football. My coach said to me, Tim, you need to understand statistics. And I said, okay, what do I need to understand? He said, number one, do you know what the chances are that you will be injured playing division one football. I said, no, he said, it's a hundred percent. So that's statistic. Number one, mm. statistic. Number two is, do you know what the chances are that you'll have a fruitful NFL career? I said, no, he said, it's 1%. Mm. So there's a hundred percent chance you're going to get hurt. There's a 1% chance you can have a fruitful career in the NFL. Mm. My advice to you is to stay in school, yeah. go to school, and think about your future outside of football. Yeah. You know what? It was great advice. So mm -hmm. I did that. I ended up doing a PhD at Oxford and that's where I got deep into culture. Mm. I've always been absolutely captivated by the power of culture mm. in organizations and social collectives and social units of every kind. Mm -hmm. And so that started the journey. And then I, I was going to, take a, an academic track and just be a professor. But I had an opportunity to go into uh, business and become a line manager in manufacturing early, very early in my career. Mm -hmm. And I became a plant manager for the largest integrated steel plant west of the Mississippi. So I had a large plant. I had nearly 3000 employees that I was responsible for. Yeah. And back, as you can imagine, Mike, we preached physical safety as a religion. Yeah. You're always worried about physical safety because you're in an environment with hazards. Yeah. All, all kinds of hazards. But it was in that environment where my training and culture came together and the light just started to turn on. And I realized the power of psychological safety as the core of culture, mm -hmm. as the heart of culture. So after that, I went into consulting and I've had my own firm for nearly 15 years. And that's what we focus on. At least a big focus is on psychological safety and cultural transformation. Mm -hmm. And we just happen to be in the 2020s, yeah. hopefully coming out of a pandemic. Hopefully. And we've just been pounded by that pandemic emotionally, psychologically, mentally. Yes. And all the more reason to focus on nurturing and cultivating a vibrant, healthy culture. So there's a little bit about my background. Yeah, yeah. It's been a transformative year for all of us, but I, I imagine with what you have been doing, I, I've referred to the pandemic as a forcing function in a lot of ways where it's made people 
move in certain directions and confront things that maybe they weren't dealing with before. And it feels like in many ways, this has been a forcing function for a lot of cultures where it's a stress test and those that are uh, doing well with it, I think are feeling more of a sense of community. I'd love to get some of your perspective on that. Yeah, I, I think it is a forcing function, but normally when we confront a culture and we say, we need to change the culture, we need to transform a culture, what we're really up against is a fossilized status quo, mm -hmm. a calcified status quo. And it's the hardest single thing to change in an organization. Mm -hmm. You can change everything else, system, structure, process, roles and responsibilities, policies and procedures, all that stuff. Those are configurable parts. Mm -hmm. And for the most part, they're not that difficult to change. Culture, on the other hand, is a completely different matter. Mm -hmm. It's the single most difficult thing to change. But here's the good news. The pandemic, it has a beautiful benefit and that is that it liquefies the status quo. Mm -hmm. So what would otherwise take a long time to change, we now have this unique opportunity where our equilibrium has been rocked into a state of disequilibrium. We're in a fluid state because mm -hmm. of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And in that fluid state, we can accelerate cultural change if we want to. Yeah, so That is the opportunity that most all of us have in front of us. Yeah, that's fantastic. I'm still chewing on the mental image of the, the calcified culture being liquefied by the disruption of the pandemic. Can you explain for us a bit what psychological safety is? And I know you've gone into uh, s some serious depth here. Yes. Psychological safety, I define it in five words. It's an environment of rewarded vulnerability. Mm. If you're in an environment that rewards acts of vulnerability rather than punishing them. Mm. If you engage in an act of vulnerability, now what am I talking about? Let me just mention a few everyday common acts of vulnerability. When you're working with other people, just presenting yourself, asking questions, making suggestions, giving and receiving feedback, and then all the way up to challenging the status quo. Mm. Those are acts of vulnerability. As humans, whenever we go into social units, we engage in threat detection. Mm -hmm. We're trying to figure out if we're in a safe or an unsafe environment. If we're in an unsafe environment, we're going to pull back. We're going to withdraw. We're going to manage personal risk. We're not going to commit those acts of vulnerability because we think we're going to get punished. Right. In a safe environment, we will jump in. We'll, we will eagerly release our discretionary efforts and we'll go for it. Mm -hmm. Now, the reason that rewarded vulnerability is important is because without it, you really can't do anything. You can't be yourself. It's too expensive. Mm -hmm. You can't learn the way that you would normally learn, not at the velocity that you could. You cannot contribute at your potential and you certainly can't challenge the status quo to make things better. Mm -hmm. So all of the fundamental things that we need to do in organizations we cannot do if vulnerability is punished. Mm -hmm. So we need vulnerability to be rewarded. That's mm -hmm. the essence of what psychological safety is. Yeah, that's great. It made me think back to your origin story where I imagine the football team at Utah needed to have 
some comfort with vulnerability to really thrive and perform optimally. I was thinking about the influence that good psychological safety has on the ability for the team to be greater than the sum of its parts seems pretty foundational. I've been in both types of environments by my reckoning. And what I find is when it's more individualistic and competitive, intra-team competitive, that it's harder to really do your best work collaboratively. It can be because let's think about an athletic team. Who's your opponent? Hmm. Now, this is where it gets interesting because your opponent is the other team that you're playing, but Mm -hmm. that's not actually fully true. Your first opponent would be the other members of the team that play your position. Mm -hmm. You're trying to beat them out. Mm -hmm. So you have this very interesting and ironic situation where you have an internal opponent or opponents, Mm -hmm. and then you have external opponents. And so it makes it difficult sometimes, to your point, to be vulnerable and to have that rewarded. Yeah. And so that's where the leaders, the coaches come in. They set the prevailing norms of the organization. Mm -hmm. And what I have found is that the most successful pattern is when they create an environment in which they separate or detach fear Mm from mistakes Mm -hmm. and failure. They pull those apart. Mm -hmm. They are probably normally associated with each other in most environments, but they need to be divorced Hmm. because when they are, then we have a new paradigm that says mistakes are not the exception. They are the expectation. This is how we learn. This is how we progress. Mm -hmm. That's the kind of environment that fosters accelerated growth. Mm -hmm. And fortunately, I've experienced both. Mike, probably as you have, right? In some instances, the leaders did pull apart fear from failure and mistakes. And in other instances, other environments that I've been in, Mm -hmm. it wasn't the case. And if you made mistakes, you got clobbered. Yeah, learned this in part from you, Tim. There is a progression of culture and progression of awareness and ability to engage in things that foster psychological safety. That's something we wanted to walk through with you as part of today's conversation. Can you catch us up quickly on that progression and then maybe we can go deeper into each. So this is the universal pattern that we discovered through our research, both qualitative and quantitative. And what it says is that psychological safety is obviously not a binary proposition. It's not something that you have or you don't have. It's a matter of degree, but even more than that, it progresses through four stages. The first stage is what we call inclusion safety, which means that you feel included, you feel accepted, you feel a sense of belonging, Mm -hmm. and that's your foundation. And in every organization, that should be your preoccupation to put that in place first. Mm -hmm. So put your foundation of inclusion safety Put that in place first. So it's like uh, Maslow's pyramid. This is your foundation of the pyramid. You can't get to the other stages if people don't feel that. And I guess it needs to be felt holistically. Everyone in the culture needs to feel that by virtue of being inclusive. Yeah. We can go deeper into the inclusion piece, but that's the foundation. That's the foundation. It will vary by individual, but the goal is that you create that condition for everyone. Mm -hmm. 
And the, the reason that stage one is because that's the first stage of, of human needs. And in our global research, that's what 92% of all the people that we surveyed, that's what they said is I'm concerned about being included first. Yeah. In fact, they, Maslow even belonging was one of his base needs not to go deep on Maslow, but uh, yeah, it's, it's Maslow, he did some good work. He did some good work and we're building on that. Yeah. There's no question. And if you go back to Maslow's, some of his original work, he does articulate what he called belongingness needs. Mm -hmm. And so we're definitely building on that research and we're validating some of that. Mm -hmm. So then we go to stage two, which is learner safety means that you can engage in the learning process and you're not going to be embarrassed or marginalized mm -hmm. or harshly criticized, asking questions, giving and receiving feedback, experimenting, making mistakes. You, you got to be able to do those things. Then we go to stage three, which is contributor safety, which means I can take what I learned in stage two. I can take all of that. I can use it. I can apply it to make a difference. Mm -hmm. And most human beings want to make a difference. Mm -hmm. That's stage three. Use all of my talents, skills, abilities, knowledge, and contribute. Be a player. Make mm -hmm. a difference. Mm -hmm. And then we go to stage four, the culminating stage, which is challenger safety. Mm. Now, this is where it gets most fascinating. Challenger safety means that you feel safe to challenge the status quo without retaliation or mm -hmm. retribution. Now think about the level of risk that you're at by the time you get to stage four. Think about the vulnerability. Mm -hmm. Think about the personal exposure that you feel at stage four. Mm -hmm. it, it really goes up. Yeah. So as you're progressing through the four stages, yes, you're following the sequence of natural human needs, mm -hmm. but you are also climbing a ladder of vulnerability. Mm -hmm. So that's the progression. Yeah, that's a pretty good. And I, I definitely want to get to the challenger space because I think that's a really interesting area to dive into around building a culture in which you're allowing people to feel safe while challenging the status quo, I think can be challenging. But to your previous point, in light of the pandemic, the status quo is no picnic anymore. So I think it's more likely that people are looking for ways to change the status quo in this liquefied state that we're in. I did want to dig in a little bit on the flip side of the equation around toxicity as well, because I know that's another uh, aspect of the thinking, almost the alternative to a psychologically safe culture is one that might have some toxicity in it. Can you expand a bit on that? Yeah, it, as you say, Mike, it's the opposite. If you think about culture on a continuum, we could say that at one end, we have a healthy and productive culture. And at the other end, we have an unhealthy, destructive culture. But toxic culture is the far side of this unhealthy and destructive continuum. What, what is a toxic culture? It's a culture characterized by infighting, drama, abuse, immoral, and, and most all the time, actually illegal behavior. Mm-hmm. Where, where people are mistreating each other. And what's really interesting about this, this was a shocker, Mike. So we did a survey just the other week and we interviewed, I think it was 960 something employees 
across industries, across many different organizations. And we asked them, have you ever worked in a toxic culture? 87% said they had. Yeah, That's nearly 90%. That's nearly nine in 10. Hmm. And, and I've got to tell you, I didn't have a benchmark figure on that. So I was taken back by that. I didn't realize that it's not only common, it's rampant. Yeah. Okay. So that's one thing. Now, the other thing I think, and this is a very useful and important distinction that your listeners will find valuable. And that is where you find a toxic culture, you will either find an actively toxic boss or a passively complicit boss Mm -hmm. that allows others to be toxic. Mm -hmm. And the difference between those two is actually extremely important. Actively toxic bosses, that means they're personally engaging in toxic behaviors. What's so fascinating is that when they are confronted with their behavior, almost always they show no remorse and they're more interested in image management. Mm -hmm. And they engage in patterns of deflection, denial, Mm -hmm. blame, Mm-hmm. excuse. And so at the end of the day, less than 5% of actively toxic bosses will actually change. It's not a hopeful number. Yeah. Now the passively complicit bosses that allow other people to be toxic, they there's a good chance they could be coachable mm-hmm. if they're given the feedback. But anyway, I thought that was a, a yeah. very interesting distinction. Right. And so if you live or work in a toxic environment, one of the first things that we want to do is to identify the source of toxicity. Mm-hmm. Is the boss being actively toxic or passively complicit? Mm-hmm. And then we can work from there to to remove that. But it's a big challenge. And the changeability of it is the the thing that I wanted to ask you more about, not just around toxicity, but just in general, how much of these leadership qualities or these qualities that you're trying to engender in your culture, how much are they teachable uh, and which ones are easiest to change, which ones might be hardest to change? The way that I would approach that, Mike, is I would invite people to think of leadership as having a core mm-hmm. and a crust around it. Okay. So the core is character. And the crust, the portion around it, that is competence. And so to be a great leader, you need both character and competence. You need a strong core and a strong crust. But think about this. If you're strong in both areas, you can be a very effective, fantastic leader. But let's look at the other combinations. Of course, if you're weak in both, you're going to be you're, you're going to be a failure. Yeah. What if you are strong? What if you have a uh, strong character, but weak crust? So you're not right. You don't have the, the, the competence. Then I would characterize you as an ineffective leader, mm-hmm. even though you have strong character and you're the kind of person that I would go to lunch with, mm-hmm. but that's it. I'm not going to follow you into battle because you're a nice person, right? And I'm happy for you, Mm -hmm. but when push comes to shove, we're not going to battle together. And then the last combination is quite fascinating. Weak character, strong competence. Mm -hmm. At that point, you're dangerous. Yep. And so 
you're going to let us down. We just don't know when. And so again, I don't want to go into battle with you. Right. Although if they're competent enough, you could see the appeal. This is a charismatic, but not morally grounded That's right. leader, which uh, we all know that they're out there and that, yeah. that we need to be encouraged, I think, to think for ourselves. And interestingly, that one does tie back to the stage of psychological safety that I wanted to to dig back into a little bit is building a culture that enables that challenger stage. Yeah, It seems like enabling up to the point of it's safe to challenge the status quo yeah. is relatively straightforward. That, that's what you would expect to be doing these days. But then I think the leap that's a little bit further that I know I've had trouble through my own development as a leader, and I know I've had conversations with other people about this, is that command and control is what gets you to a certain point in your career. And then it's almost like you have to let go of those trappings of formal hierarchy and authority yeah. to encourage the most genuinely diverse and inclusive conversation. So I'd, I'd love to hear more from you on the challenger stage. Right. So let's go back. If you lead from the dark side of charisma, <laughs> yes. if you are narcissistic, you're going to have a really hard time getting to stage four challenger safety. And you made a really good point, Mike, which is a lot of people can do really well with basic execution with the approach of command and control and fear and intimidation. We can get a lot done through compliance. Mm -hmm. What happens, however, if you're asked to lead in a highly dynamic environment and you need to innovate mm -hmm. and your competitive advantage is extremely perishable, it's always melting, try to do that with command and control it's not gonna happen. And so at that point, you need to bring superb emotional intelligence. You need to bring humility. You need to lay down all of your ego defense mechanisms in order to really get people to challenge the status quo. You have to demonstrate your own vulnerability and it's gotta be real. Mm -hmm. Because one of the things that I talk about in the book Mike, is that for stage four challenger safety, there's a social exchange. And the exchange is that I will give you the candid feedback that you want. And I will challenge the status quo in exchange for you giving me air cover, you protecting me in that behavior. Mm -hmm. If you don't protect me and give me air cover for my candor, mm -hmm. no deal. Yeah. And so your humility, your vulnerability, your emotional intelligence has to be real. Mm -hmm. We can all smell intent. Mm -hmm. And so if it's not there, you don't pass the smell test, then I'm just going to withdraw again. So think about the challenge that leaders are up against in this decade of the 2020s. Mm -hmm. It's a formidable challenge because it's hard for most of us and most of our organizations, innovation is the lifeblood of growth yep. and you need to be able to lead innovation. How are you gonna do that? So much of it's cultural because innovation at its root is a social process that relies on collaboration mm -hmm. yeah. and divergent thinking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's fantastic stuff. What are you doing within Leader Factor to engage with this tumult that we've been going through over the past year. It's been a very transformative year. 
Yeah. How has that been specifically for you? Was there a different world, a different universe that you were dealing with pre-pandemic? And now that we're a year into the pandemic, when we're recording this, any reflections on your personal journey over that year, any trends you've seen over the course of that time? The biggest one is that we've had to shift to virtual work, virtual teamwork with our team, but also virtual delivery to our clients, our customers. And one of the amazing things that has come out of the pandemic is that we've had to challenge our assumptions about what we could actually do virtually. With clients, they thought that we couldn't do a lot of things. We had to be face-to-face. -face. For example, doing leadership development with a multinational corporation and not being face-to-face. -face. Before the pandemic, a lot of people said, you can't do that. You gotta do a whole bunch of these things face-to-face. -face. We've been doing virtual engagements for a year mm -hmm. and it's been unbelievably successful. So I think that in many ways, Mike, we're not going back. Yeah. There will be blended delivery, mm -hmm. but we're not going back to the old model. Yeah. We're just yeah. not. Yeah. I, things that were not intentional pre-pandemic will forever be intentional in the future. If you're traveling for work in particular, for learning, and in, in your case, you're really doing both, rather than talking about it as remote learning, I've heard it described as home learning. And in some ways, when we're all nested in our safe places, yeah. you're coming at it with less of the risk and face exposure that you get in a, a professional setting. Have you noticed that as well? Because it does feel like we've been thrust into more psychological and emotional distress. Yeah. And then we've also been cocooned in our home places. So I've seen more emotional vulnerability in the engagements that I've had over the past year, all virtual than I can recall in say the previous five years. Yeah. And it's just become more of a norm. I'd be curious about your experience with this. I would agree with that. It, we've seen people who feel more isolated, mm. more disconnected. Mm. And yet, because many organizations have not been able to overcome or compensate for what the pandemic has done. But there are some who have. And so what we've put to the test during the pandemic is this. Can we create a sense of deep community, an incubator, or really a sanctuary of inclusion? That kind of environment, even though we are virtual, mm -hmm. is that possible? Mm -hmm. And what we are seeing is that it is possible. It's not easy. Yeah. But we are seeing people who have been living and working on virtual teams mm -hmm. who feel a deep sense of community, connection, belonging, acceptance, inclusion. Yeah. And, and they haven't been face to face with colleagues for a year. Yeah. So that's a hypothesis that we've been testing. And some people have proved that you can do it. Mm -hmm. But how do you do that? It's very difficult. The sad news is that there have been many casualties. Yes. And many people have been adversely affected by all of this because right. the leaders aren't doing a very good job. I'll give you one example of, of what we've learned. So one thing that we've learned is that the way that you connect with members of a virtual team is that your pattern of communication and connection needs to be frequent and brief. Hmm rather than infrequent and long. Hmm. 
that basic difference in the pattern of connection and communication is massively important. Hmm. If you let people go and you don't, and your touch points aren't frequent enough, yeah, you're going to lose them. Hmm. And yeah. that's just the pattern of connection, hmm. the pattern of communication. We're not even talking about what you're communicating wow. and how you're connecting. Yeah. That one thing, if, if you don't do that with your virtual team, mm-hmm. you're going to lose people. They're going to disengage. Yeah. And they're not going to be able to contribute and, and do what they otherwise could. Yeah. Well, that's the other thing I, I really appreciate about your work is that it's not just the right thing to do. It's also good for business, which is easy sometimes to forget. But building these types of cultures that you're describing, it's a competitive advantage over the, the toxic cultures and uh, it's where the genuine innovation is going to happen. It's also where I imagine they stay more fluid through this transitional period that we're in. Because that's the other thing I wanted to get from you is more perspective on where you see us heading. But I imagine in the best case, there's no reverting to the previous status quo and even the new normal, hopefully adopt some little more of a challenger dynamic to it so that you stay in that transitional, opportunistic, innovative frame of mind. I agree with that. Like, I don't think we're going back. There are some changes that have occurred based on the pandemic trends that we'll go back a little bit, but we're never going back fully. Yeah. For example, Think about the levels of autonomy and flexibility, just those two things, Mm -hmm. levels of autonomy and flexibility that people have, many people, maybe millions of people have experienced for the first time in their professional lives. They don't want to give that up. And so if they don't want to give that up, then they have to learn accountability at a different level because Mm -hmm. many people were managed at the task level with all these metrics at the task level, you need to do this and this and this on this frequency and these are the outcomes that we need. It's all task-based accountability. What, what have we learned during the pandemic? We've learned that you couldn't manage many people at the task level. You didn't have the visibility, you didn't yeah. have the contact. And so by necessity, we had to go from task level accountability to process and project level accountability and even to outcome level accountability. Mm-hmm. And so what I'm saying is, for the people that want to keep a hold of that autonomy and flexibility, mm-hmm. they have had to learn outcome-based accountability. And if they can create and deliver value on that basis, they are entitled to keep their autonomy and their flexibility. Mm-hmm. Now, some people have crashed and burned and they haven't done well. They, they have not done well in this environment. And it's unfortunate. They haven't had perhaps the support and the encouragement and the guidance and the coaching and the mentoring that they've needed. Mm-hmm. And they have floundered mm-hmm. and their productivity has gone south and their confidence has gone south and they're going to need help. They haven't navigated well. We've been through this trauma, Mike. Some people have come out with post-traumatic stress disorder. So they're PTSD. Others have come out with post-traumatic growth. Mm -hmm. So they've gone through similar experiences. Some have been devastated by it. Some have actually grown through it and by it. 
And I think that's what we're seeing now is we're coming out. Mm-hmm. We're seeing those that, that, that have done extremely well. They've taken their game to another level. Yeah. They've been able to capitalize on the autonomy and the flexibility. Mm-hmm. Others have not. And so we've got to go back and we've got to help them because they have, unfortunately, they've been devastated by the experience. Yeah. Does that make sense? It totally makes sense. And that's why the digital divide is such a big deal. It's why catching your learners where they are and realizing that those who maybe were able to ride the early waves and be on the right side of this innovation cycle we've been through, it's it, in some ways it's on those of us who've gone through this and, and been okay, maybe some have even thrived to... Yeah elevate the entire game to get back to that inclusive level you were describing. I think that is very much where a lot of my attention has been, particularly around education. As we're wrapping up, Tim, first off, if folks want to learn more, this has been amazing. I'm sure folks, you've whetted their appetites. So if they want to track you or track down more of this type of thinking, where should they go? What should they do? Sure. Visit us at leaderfactor.com or uh, you can certainly follow me on LinkedIn, uh, Timothy R. Clark, and love to hear from you. Yeah. yeah. So you're clearly someone who's even back to your early uh, football days, you're, you, you strike me as someone who plays with your head up and you're paying attention to what's happening in the world around us, trying to identify what's new and emerging. Outside of what we talked about so far, what out there is capturing your attention? What do you see on the horizon for us as we, we head into this decade? I'll just mention one thing, Mike, and that is learning patterns. Hmm. The, the people that had learning patterns of aggressive, self-directed learning before the pandemic, they have thrived. They, they have really thrived. They're aggressive, self-directed learners. Mm. Those that haven't have really struggled. And so it's the difference between hibernating during the pandemic mm. versus accelerating during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. So much of it goes back to your individual learning disposition and your individual learning habits. Are they aggressive and self-directed? Mm. Or have you been on education welfare mm. because you've relied on the institutional machinery of your organization to carry you along? Mm-hmm. If you had that pattern going into pandemic, you probably did not thrive. Mm-hmm. If you were an aggressive, self-directed learner, you probably did thrive. Yeah, that's a good one. That's deep. There's a a lot to chew on there. And then how do you inspire? Is that a competency or is that a core element of an individual? I'd be curious, is that something that you can unlock in people? Yeah, I absolutely believe that you can unlock it. I had a professor at Oxford that said, he said, "The, the most important thing that you can learn when you're in school is how to learn when you get out of school. Mm. And that has resonated with me for all of these years since I left. And I truly believe that you need to be prepared to learn when you get out of school. That's the single most important thing that you can learn because how much time are you going to spend in a structured learning environment? Right. After you get out of school, very little. So you need to be prepared to learn for the balance of your life. Yeah. So I would just emphasize that point. Yeah, that's fantastic. Lots of stuff going on here with uh, Dr. Timothy Clark, the founder and CEO of Leader Factor. Tim, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure, Mike. Thanks very much. And for our listeners, hopefully you're enjoying what you're hearing. If you like it, tell a friend, write us a review, share the love. We'll be back again soon. This is Trending in Education. (laughs) 